freedom and censorship can't exist in the same world. And that's true whether it's the government or private corporations who do the censoring. Hi, I'm Ron Coleman, and welcome to the Coleman Nation podcast. It's a show where I sit down with guests to discuss the future of free expression and thought in our interconnected world. Here, we will focus on issues involving social media, cancel culture, and free expression that everybody who cares about ideas or freedom should be wrestling with. Well, this is at least as special, and maybe even specialer than any other Coleman Nation podcast we've done so far. I obviously mean no disrespect to my other guests, but to get America's hottest action journalist with us today, that's Jack Posobiec, of course, um, a good friend of mine, calling us from uh, en route to one of his uh, incredible special missions. Jack, what's going on with you? Thanks for coming on. Hey, Ron, I appreciate the uh, the the buttering up there that you, that you've done. You put me in <laughs> such a wonderful position to to divulge all of my secrets now because I feel so so at ease and so at comfort. No, but seriously, congratulations on the podcast. Uh, t- huge success. I love that people are actually listening to it. You've always been, you know, such a great sounding board for me and such a great, you know, person that's had so many ideas. Looking forward, you know, I remember sitting in a restaurant with you. I think two years ago, talking about how yep. you said we need to look at the state level when it comes to censorship and when it comes to social media. Now you look at Florida, Ron DeSantis just signed the first of its kind in the nation law regarding social media, and it's at the state level. I mean, you called that years ago and you said, this is what we're going to do. And now we're seeing it actually come to fruition. So I don't know if people realize that that was a Ron, that was a Ron Coleman joint, uh, but it was. <laughs> Well, you know, to some extent it was. I will tell you that I wrote a paper, you know, it, it's related to the article that Will and I did in Human Events on that topic that I know was circulated among certain attorneys general uh, and maybe some people uh, you took a look at. It. Some of them, you know, we you don't always get a lot of feedback when that happens. You just throw it out there and hope that maybe you can help things out. As we say on Twitter, don't let your memes be dreams. We say that? We do say that. We do, actually. I think we have to take you as authoritative of what gets said on Twitter. Oh yeah, no, I'm 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 the source. I'm the Oracle of Delphi when it comes to that. <laughs> Jack, um, you just made a move though from OAN, where where you, you were doing some really cool stuff, uh, and some of it was on OAN, and some of it was elsewhere. You were working, I guess, on your Antifa book while at OAN. I don't know if it was related to the work, if it was the outgrowth of your work. What What's your main, what do we call you now besides America's action hero? <laughs> well, you know, I'm, uh, so, uh, you know, we did make the announcement um, a couple of days ago, but it is official. So I'm, I'm going to be moving to human events as the senior editor over there. So working with Will Chamberlain, working with the whole team, Jeff Webb, Rick Hemachek, and a few others that we're bringing together really looking to take that brand of human events that had been sort of this incredible cultural and conservative flagship for so many years to kind of resurrect it, bring it up, bring it forward. So Will's done a lot of work on that already. A lot of people have been putting in the time on that. We are going to take it to the next level and start churning out uh, op-eds and news as well as breaking news. We actually just right out of the gate 
broke that story about um, the State Department planning to uh, fly the BLM banner throughout, you know, essentially the world at many of our embassies and diplomatic posts around the world. So we broke that story. Tucker Carlson was able to cover it the very next day. Excuse me, the day it actually came out. So before before it actually happened, and then it, the next day it was the anniversary of George Floyd. So they're they're flying that everywhere. So you know, we're taking our sources, we're taking our reports, we're taking our scoops, we're taking it all to the next level. And, you know, with, with human events, I'm just very excited to be part of such a storied organization with the amount of history they have. I think the, the, the catchphrase I'm supposed to say is it was Ronald Reagan's favorite magazine. And it's actually true. It actually was. It was the one where, um, you know, that was sort of a conservative, you know, grassrootsy kind of magazine where, you know, the uh, Bush and everybody from, you know, H.W. Bush and, and his sort of like neoconservative coterie would always try to prevent Reagan from reading human events because they knew that he an actual conservative, uh, you know, would get an actual conservative opinion if he went there. Yes, I remember those days, Jack. I, I was actually there, not, in, not anywhere near Reagan, of course. I was in high school, but I do remember those days. And I, as I, I do love what you guys are doing, and I, I have had the privilege of running a couple of pieces in human events, and, and my better half has run even more than I have. And another one is uh, coming out, I think, over the weekend. She is, um, she's, I'm the talker, she's the writer. <laughs> but we are happy to be part of the human events family. This is not a human events sponsored podcast, however. Uh, not that not that we wouldn't consider it, but well, the, the, we'll 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 all be in the same gulags eventually. That's that's, that's probably the best way to put it. <laughs> well, that's that's you know we always say that, but you know that's the one thing we won't get. Right. It, they're not going to let us you know we're, uh, hang out together. But in any event, let, we're having as much fun as we I think possibly can. And as David Glederman, before he completely lost his mind, used to say back in those same days, we're probably having more fun than humans should be allowed with this stuff. You've got to have a sense of humor about some of this. You know, it may, it may be a dark humor. It may be a gallows humor. You know, having been in the military, you pick up a little bit of that because when you're, when you're dealing with some of these topics and when you're looking at groups like Antifa, when you're looking at threats to freedom of speech, you know, you could, you could go nuts um, when you're tracking some of the stuff we do on a day-in, day-out basis. So, you know, the really, the really only way to deal with it just mentally, emotionally, spiritually is to keep a, keep a kind of sense of humor from it. Well, you know, I, and I'll tell you, you know, you've been very kind here because you picked up my attempt to segue and, 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 and helped it out. But now I'm going to go and hit another hyperlink before we go to that segue, which is speaking of humor, you know, I put a couple of bucks into your Agent Poso comic, you, you know, back, I guess it was last year. Oh, yeah. And oh, yeah. Got, when it came out, it got sent to me and I put it aside. And I said, I'm going to have to look at this. And I really, I, I didn't, I wasn't really dying to look at it. I, 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 you know, I said, listen, this is, Jack is building some kind of brand. I don't know what he's doing here, but all right. You know, eventually I got bored enough with those really thick books that are always shown behind, behind me in the pictures uh, and said, okay, let's, let's look at Jack's comic. And it was so funny. I, I completely, I just did not, first of all, I didn't know that you were working with, with DC Drano on it, that he was your, your sidekick. But the scene, all our friends, uh, you know, not all of our friends, but so, so many of our friends, uh, you know, uh, being uh, handled so amusingly. And, and the, you, of course, are the least interesting character in the book because oh, you let everyone else, you, everyone else shown instead of, instead of you. And it was so just the tongue in cheek the whole way. I was so pleasantly surprised. I really enjoyed it. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. You know, we had a, we had a lot of fun writing it. 
And uh, it's not often you get a, a comic book written about you. Um, but actually, when, the, when the, the team that put it together, Brett Smith and Chuck Dixon, approached me about it, I, I couldn't believe it because, you know, I, I grew up reading comics myself. And, you know, we wanted to have something that sort of had that cultural impact that you could hand to, you know, hand to a kid and say, hey, check this out. It's about this action team. They're fighting China. They're fighting you know, these, these global, you know, UN groups, you know, little, little did we know how close it would come to uh, reality. Um, you know, the whole thing is set yes. in Shanghai, the whole sort of climax is set in Shanghai That's right. prior to, you know, the pandemic and prior to everything else, the PLA is, is sort of the main bad guys. I just always yeah. love how guys like you are so comfortable flying with jetpacks. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the jetpacks are actually a lot more comfortable. I mean, there's a learning curve, obviously, but once you get into it, it's really not that bad. I mean, yeah, a couple of them might blow up on you, but as long as you make it past that point, you're good. All right. Now, speaking of of, of evil doers, I do want to make that segue over to the book. But but remember, as you as you as you as you know, the the general and you know, you and I can and off you know when we have a chance, we do we, we can talk about a gazillion things. But I'd like to talk about your book. And talk about, uh, in particular, because of the angle, because of the slant, as we say, of, of, of the podcast, talk about the relationship between the press and free speech and the phenomenon, the, the idea, and the very, very real um, reality of, of Antifa. So when did, you, when did you start in this book? Well, you know, it's, it's interesting because the book and, and you know, just came out of that Antifa book.com people can see it there we've got numerous places for people to go amazon's trying to not let people buy it right now which is the thing that we're we're looking into um but you know they keep saying it's out of stock and we're like no we have plenty of stock what are you doing and um so we st- a lot of it comes from my own writing my own notes that go all the way back to 2016 actually and some of the first instances that i crossed paths with these guys when i was infiltrating their meetings back in uh, in a church basement, literally basement in Washington, D.C., just going in, you know, and before I was kind of a known quantity, um, just walking around and, and seeing what was up. And, you know, of course, little did I know that they had my name already up on one of their posters about somebody they wanted to go after. But, uh, you know, and so we, we tell those stories of the infiltrations. We tell the story of when they attacked the president's inauguration, President Trump's inauguration in 26, well, 2017, uh, January, that nobody really talks about anymore. Uh, so many of these stories that nobody talk about. The, all the way up through the infiltration of Chaz in 2020, so that Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone out in Seattle, you know, the, the sights, the sounds, the smells of Chaz, um, and the, the, the denizens of that, of that dark area. But really what we get into as well, uh, not only from the sort of on the ground, on the streets scenes with, with, I really try to put people right in the, you know, first person perspective of what it was like to go through all of these different events, um, the times where they attacked my family, times where I saw them attacking other people. But we take a step back and we look at the dark money networks, the funding that goes to these guys, and what I really call the cornucopia of corruption involving not only the funding that goes into them some, from some very big name, well-named foundations, but also the media uh, tacit endorsement of these groups, the way that social media does not crack down on them, allows them to operate with complete impunity. And we opened the entire book with actually the conversations between uh, then President Donald Trump and FBI Director Chris Ray right in the Oval Office 
arguing with each other across the resolution about whether or not the FBI should be going after Antifa. So FBI Director Ray didn't seem all that interested in the topic of Antifa. Well, FBI Director Ray is sitting across from the Resolute desk and saying, you know what, Mr. President, we don't go after ideologies, but if something specific happens, we'll be sure to go really hard against them. But at the same time, that was every single night something was going on, night after night, for 52 nights in the city of Portland, the city of Seattle, New York, Washington, D.C. All right, we saw this again and again. And what we've done in the book is we've actually outlined, people can see it at antifabook.com, an entire timeline. It's the entire summer of rage of 2020. Date, time, location, event, a link to the local news source where we got it from, where every single one of these events, starting with George Floyd all the way through, that people can see that you can point to because the media has memory holds so much of this. When you look at 2020, they never talk about it. But we know that it was the largest violence in terms of the insurance money that was declared, the most extensive damage that was done in civil riots in United States history. So all that's going on. And before we get to the media memory holding it, let me just ask you, as someone who has some experience with the government and who's been working and living in D.C. now for a while, how does what's the deal with Ray? I mean, is he how do you how does he do that? How does he pull that off? How does he have the audacity? I mean, just as a man, is he in denial? Is he just in this incredible level of denial? Is he, you know, a plant or something? What's your take on it? You know, my take on it, and I do say this in the book, is I, I don't necessarily think that he is a plant. I think he is just part of the Washington, D.C. apparatus. He's part of that bureaucratic sphere. He's part of that bubble, the D.C. bubble, the Beltway bubble, whatever you want to call it, uh, in the same way that Dr. Fauci is, right? I, I don't think that these people realize the extent of their of, of, of their disservice to the American people. I think that they live in this Beltway blob. They don't come out of it. They don't actually look at, at the fruits or of their labor or the lack thereof in this case. Uh, I think that they care more about, they, they put their interest in the institutions over the interests of a country. And I don't think that for them, it's, it's something where they're not patriotic or they're doing it out of, out of any negative reasons. I think it's just they, they really believe that the institutions are the most important things to defend the, the actual country. And so that does create a sort of inverted set of priorities because they end up wanting to protect the institution more than they want to protect the actual people that are at the receiving end of this kind of violence night after night. And they're obviously confident because of, because of their residence in this bubble that their, that their take on things won't be viewed negatively. In other words, that, you know, at the end of the day, if, if, the, if the orientation is careerism and being part of the machine, you think, well, I don't want to look like an idiot. I don't want to pretend that there's that, that what everyone who's on Twitter knows. I'm the FBI director, so I obviously don't rely just on CNN and NBC for my news, right? Or does he? Well, see, that's the thing, right? You, and if, if you spend time in the intelligence community or national security services, you know that what in Washington, CNN, the Washington Post, the New York Times, they set the tone. They set the agenda for Washington, D.C., and increasingly MSNBC as well. You can actually see the, the revolving door between the intelligence community and MSNBC right now. It's something Glenn Greenwald's talked about at length. But it's really something where they get their worldview 
set for them from these media outlets, and then they show up for work at FBI, at CIA, wherever you are, DIA, and you're getting your information, but you're already putting it up against the mental framework that's been given to you, that worldview that's been handed to you by these legacy media outlets. So since they're setting the frame, that's where you get, uh, the, you know, the one I remember specifically was Benghazi, where, you know, they were, you were hearing from the president and you're hearing from all of his sort of uh, supporters that, oh, this is just a YouTube video. It's just a YouTube video, right? Two months before the election in 2012, this, this massive attack, the assassination of the ambassador. Well, it was, it was a response to a YouTube video, a response to a YouTube video. because was a protest that got out of hand. And then you would start to see people in the IC, in the government, actually using those talking points. And that's what led to Susan Rice, of course, going on TV very infamously and spreading this complete lie, right? But you really start questioning, are there people who are just buying it because that's where they got it from? They got it from TV. But isn't there a, isn't there a cadre of people in, in the intelligence agencies called analysts whose job it is to make sure that those who have decisions, operational decisions to make or, or advice and recommendations to give are acting on better information than what is published in the Washington Post? So here's the amazing thing with that, and I say this as someone who served as an analyst for about eight and a half years in the intelligence community. You are taught to be critical use a critical eye to a human intelligence report or, a, you know, a signals intelligence report or some interception, whatever it may be, right? But then the same analyst, time after time, will go to U.S. media sources, and it's like that filter gets turned off. It's like that all that information or all those processes that you're taught to use, all that critical thinking, you would call it, the critical eye, they say, well, we assume that's already been done at CNN and the Washington Post before, they wouldn't publish it before they've done their critical analysis. They wouldn't, they wouldn't publish something off bad sources. No, this is, you know, this is the institution, right? So again, it gets you back to the institutionalism, it gets you back to those legacy titles that we know now, of course, time and again, that those safeguards, those standards are not being followed. So if you're taking something like that at face value, like so many people do, you're probably going to be in the wrong and you're probably going to be in trouble. We're starting to actually see that a little bit when it comes to the city of Portland and some of these other cities that have gone on deep on the police train because they're, you know, they're, they're starting to say, well, social justice movement has really encountered some violence and some anarchist uprisings. And well, we, we, we think that this is derailing the social justice movement. It's a, no, it, it, it was actually caused by your movement because it was given a free hand by your defund the police tactic. Okay, so, so that sets me up for this question, which is, is it, is it because they're looking through these institutional goggles, which have a political component to them, that they, people in law enforcement and in investigative agencies like the FBI misread the facts or is there any actual in infiltration or channel between antifa leadership and forget about the thugs i mean unless you tell me otherwise my assumption has always been i haven't read the book yet so I'll be quite honest with you i'm i'm told it's out of stock i'm assuming that on the one hand you have these losers and thugs who are paid to do the damage and then you've got the people who are 
directing them at the street level. You can see this in the videos, and Andy is great, Andy, Andy No, at um, you know explaining the, this stuff as are others. You can see who does the, the stage direction, who's not, you know, acting sort of as a uh, non-commissioned officer or maybe you know a squad a squad leader. Yeah, we we in in, in the in their parlance they refer to this as reds, yellows, and greens. And so the, the greens are sort of like your normies. Those are the people who are just showing up dressed in black. They're not really sure what they're supposed to do. The yellows are those, you know, kind of like NCOs, the street leaders. And then the reds are the ones actually going out, committing the direct violence, the direct action. They're smashing the window. You know, one guy comes up with a hammer, smashes a window. The next guy comes and he's got a, a smoke bomb or a Molotov cocktail. That goes in the window. Okay, that's a tactic. That's something that's been done before. If you look at some of the other attacks, like the milk. Again, use pre-planned tactics used. The first person throws a milkshake, then the next few people throw punches or throw projectiles, right? The milkshake is, is designed to blind you. Then the victim is is struck either with implements or if they're not available, they'll just you know, come in and punch and kick you. Again, all of this it has been pre-planned. It's been pre-staged. That, those are the reds that are committing it, but a lot of it is done by these NPOs, as you put it, uh, or, or what they would say in parlance of the black bloc, the yellows. So, but, but above the yellows, right? There's got to be somebody who's, who's the green again? The, the, the greens are your just, you know, your, 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 your chattel, right? Those are the people Those who are, are showing up and aren't, 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 yeah, they're, yeah, they're, they're in the streets, but they're not necessarily planning to commit violence or direct violence. And the yellows are the guys who are directing traffic there. That's right. And the and the blacks. Yeah, I'm almost thinking of it as a pyramid as well. And then the red, the reds are the ones that are that are going to go to the next level and actually commit violence. But all right, but, but you're still now talking about. I'm just talking about the black block hierarchy on the street. Entirely tactical. Yes. Okay, so they're in turn obviously reporting to higher ups. I assume that any relationship, maybe I'm wrong, with with press organs is at a higher level than that. Maybe it's maybe it's, it's street level as well. So you, you see relationship with press at the street level in terms of, and I, and I talk about Julio Rojas, I talk about others that have reported on this, where you, you have these press that are seen as sort of fellow travelers, and then they become known quantities in some of these areas where they have more hardened cadre of Antifa, like Portland is a great example of this, DC increasingly, New York as well, where you have press that are known to be sympathetic, or, you know, the term fellow travelers is, is something that, you know, kind of comes sure. up where they take a step away. They're a step removed from the actual activity, but they're the same guys who show up again and again. They sort of use the same language. They use the same terminology. They'll use phrases like... So they're using terminology, Jack's fellow travelers. You all know, you know, this is, this is the language of Communist Party cells from the 19th, uh, 30s and 40s and 50s. Oh, yes. Very much so. And they're very obviously comfortable with that. And in the same way, in the same way, by the way, that you saw in the 1930s when Antifa was founded in Weimar, Germany, the common turn, the internet, the communist international, they set up one of the main things they set up for what Trotsky called these international fighting brigades that he wanted to set up to destabilize countries for the communist revolution. They set up an international legal fund because they knew that there would be times where people would be imprisoned, where people would need legal representation, where people would be facing criminal charges. And so they had to have a fund to protect them. You see that exact same relationship going on now 
between the legal outlets that are funded by many of these foundations. A lot of this is done through the Alliance for Global Justice. And this is what, these are the people who step up and they say, oh, it's pro bono, it's, we're just doing this because we believe in human rights, we believe these are activists, et cetera, et cetera. And it's that very same function of a legal arm that they know serves as that sort of insurance so that even if some of these Black Fox members do get identified, do get captured, that they will be able to fight tooth and nail along the way. Now, fast forward to today, you see DAs in so many of these cities, like Chesapeake in San Francisco, like Krasner in Philadelphia, um, Gardner in St. Louis, et cetera, where they are dropping charges against you know, Portland. They're dropping charges against people who are committing these acts. At the same time that you are conservative, they will throw the book against you for even the most minor infraction. Right, and this is a and this is a disaster. And this is a disaster, and all credit in the world to whoever's funding it. People often associated with George Soros. It's an incredible tactical move because what was happening, what was happening politically over the last 10, 15 years, twenty years, is that Republicans were dominating. This is all going on. They're dominating in in the city of Philadelphia. You know, they put up a sort of centrist, moderate Democrat to run against Krasner just a few weeks ago in this past election. And Krasner just destroyed him, completely blew him out of the water. So to some extent, you know, and this is why I put on Twitter all the time, get out of cities. To some extent, you have to say the cities are voting for this. The people continue to vote for it, even why, and, you know, getting past Antifa, they are going soft on crime. Murder rates are skyrocketing to levels we have not seen in a generation in these cities. This is a very bad situation. And it doesn't seem like the off ramp is anywhere in sight. No, but actually, it, I, I, I agree with you a thousand percent. And, and it, you know, my original point was going to be, you know, you see at the state house level and at the federal level that Republicans have actually been tremendously successful, notwithstanding the spin, the narrative, oh, Trump destroyed the Republican. Fact is, Republicans have been electorally successful at the, at the state and federal level. So what they focused on were two things: city councils and district attorneys and attorneys general. And because those are the guys who you can make, you can pass all the laws in the world. These are the guys who decide incredibly whether they will enforce them or not. That's exactly right. So now let me segue from that, Jack, from the narrative creation that you were just talking about to the narrative suppression, because that's a little bit kind of my special interest here. To what extent, I mean, you think there would be, and you you know you've worked as a journalist, and you still do. There's always an incentive. Even look, remember we all. It's off, It's easy to forget that the uh, the Bill Clinton's uh, affair in the Oval Office with that charming young lady was not only broken by the New York Times. Well, if it wasn't broken by the New York Times, it, it was certainly prosecuted by the New York Times. Uh, a democratic organ, even then, obviously. There's always an incentive within the journalism community, even if they are to a large extent a block today of, of liberals and Democrats, to get the story that others are ignoring because that gets you circulation, that gets you Pulitzers. What has happened to destroy that incentive? Why are there no defectors? from the group narrative. So what's happened with a lot of these legacy media, it's, it's pretty simple and it's, it's something that's been going on for about 15 years now in the, in the industry. 
is because of the bifurcation of media and really the decentralization, balkanization of media in the space through the rise of the internet. You've got people now who are self-selecting media. You've got a huge rise of independent media. People have more options than ever to get their news, to get their you know, options other than, than news to get out there, right? It's not three, six, and 10 anymore the way it used to be in the 90s and prior. So with that, you've got these outlets having to make a choice. Do they want to try to be standing up for the truth for all people and be those arbiters of, you know, in the past that they had of, as you say, chasing the story no matter where it leads, or do they want to play their audience? And that's what they're doing. They're cha- they're, they have made their choice. They are chasing an audience. They are chasing clicks and retweets. They will, and this is, this is why you see, by the way, Rachel Maddow has made an entire industry out of this cottage industry of the quote-unquote get Trump narrative, right? It doesn't even matter what the Trump narrative of the day is. You know, there was, first it was Russia, then Russia went away, then it became Ukraine, then Ukraine went away, then it became the election, the election went away. And I believe now they're settling on one of his, uh, one of his Westchester estates and something about the taxes and it's not the federal government anymore, but it's Cy Vance. It, but again, it doesn't matter to them because they are pushing it and it's one hand feeding the other. Because while people like Patricia James and Cy Vance now then they are launching these investigations for political purposes, they are going onto these media platforms or or getting interviewed by them. And the same way, they build up their profiles as the media builds up their their circulation. And here's, I think the key point is that even though there's this bifurcation, so there's a left-wing media and there's a a right-wing media and very little, if anything, in between, the left-wing media is made up almost entirely of, le- of, what, of what I described based on you know, where I come from as a, as a trademark lawyer as legacy brands with all this great brand equity. So even though the New York Times is vastly inferior as a s- journalism source to, you know, let's say the Epic Times, let's just say the Epic Times, um, the vast majority of Americans who are not as active on the internet or who are not aware of this bifurcation, they're investing their credibility with the equity brands because they, that's, that's what you do with equity. You, you know, I mean, they, they assume that still, it's still the New York Times that still kind of wants to get the story straight. And when those brands see a threat, as they did when you were at OAM, they tried to bring you down. Uh, they, you know, a campaign has begun against individuals who are considered to be potential thought leaders or publications, whether it's OAN or human events. And if you see how human events is referred to on the internet by leftists, it's a right-wing radical rag. Uh, whatever the case may be, that's the narrative. And, and it's picked up in turn, it's, it, it's cycled back into the echo chambers that affect the legacy media figures. Right, and so, you know, when we talk about this, you know, I was on Tim Pool recently, and he has this this idea that he thinks the divisions are are here to stay. And I don't know if I'm quite as 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 he would say hopeless as as he might be on that. But I understand where he's coming from, and and it's interesting because now because of these divisions in terms of our worldview, in terms of our narrative, in terms of where we get our perspectives from, you know, you've got you've got one house that might believe one thing and the house next door that might believe another because you're watching a different TV channel or you're you're reading different news on the internet. One of my biggest tweets over that I dredge up from time to time 
is one where I say that the gap in America is no longer ideological or, or cultural, but rather it is a completely different view of the facts of, of what the, of the worlds that we live in between a good third of uh, a good third of the country on the one hand, a good third of the country on the other hand, and the middle third kind of being confused and not really necessarily being that engaged. But but we're we're living in alternative factual universes where people believe that, that you know that Donald Trump told people to drink bleach, and people believe that that Joe Biden uh, really earned eighty one million votes. That's, I think, you know, I think, I think Tim's right about that. What, what is it that make you, makes you a little bit more optimistic? Well, so what, what makes me more optimistic in all of this is because I think, I don't think the situation is sustainable. You know, I also, I don't think that the country is going to blow up over this. And I think there's enough people that are going to say, you know what, it's not, it's just not worth it. It's not worth losing the United States of America over this. It's not worth losing so much that we've worked for, we've fought for, for so many years that people have been, you know, building on the backs of, of those who came before us to, you know, to have this country. So, you know, I, I think there's going to be, there will be partisans, right? There will be people who are just straight up, you know, you could say, you know, more, you know, have that tribalistic view of, of making team sports of everything, right? You know, my team has to win and I've destroyed the other team, that kind of thing. But I think there's going to be a larger amount of people that say, you know what, I'm sick of the partisanship. I'm sick of the bickering. I'm sick of the back and forth. I just want to know what's going on. I just want the truth. I just want the facts. And I want that sort of no BS in the middle. And I think that is going to be the largest group. I think they're going to have critical mass. And I think that is going to come forward. And by the way, when you look at narratives like Antifa, that we were told that it didn't exist. We were told it's just an idea. It's not a real thing. Look, we had the facts. We had the video. We put it forward. The Wuhan Institute of Virology, another example of this, where the lab leak theory was something that was completely derided early on. Now it's being talked about at the highest levels of government. Well, actually, of course, you know, thanks to the Fauci emails, we know that it was actually talked about at the highest levels of government, even when they were denying it. But now, of course, we know yeah, we're able to talk about it out in the open. So they are. And that's, that's because of independent media. That's because people are having that sort of bias towards the no spin. And so I think that because of the rise of independent media and, you know, even with, and you're seeing actually a lot more discipline from independent media. And certainly, you know, there was a, yeah, I think when independent media first started, there was a tendency toward saying the biggest, boldest thing to get the most retweets, the most eyeballs, the most attention, but then realizing that with more discipline and more responsibility, you will over time get more attention because you're telling the truth and you're doing so in a consistent manner. Regardless of whether or not that's something your audience wants to hear, they're going to develop that level of trust with them. And it may not be necessarily in terms of institutions. It's going to be more in, turn, in line with individuals. You're going to see that more and more. You need that direct relationship with people because that's really how social media works. They don't care. You know that you're CNN. They don't care that you're Fox. They don't care that you're OAN. They want to know who you are, what you're about, and whether or not you're here to tell the truth or essentially to gaslight people. I, I, I think you're right, and I think I think you make a, you know your point is guess what? At the end of the day, we are discussing the Wuhan lab, and if if the best they can do is keep the lid on these stories, 
when it matters for specific periods of time, lead ups to election, that's not going to do. That's not going to be good enough. And you know from your intelligence background, the larger a conspiracy gets, I and mean, we are basically talking about a sort of conspiracy of messaging, the larger a conspiracy gets, on the one hand, the more effectual it might be in its execution, but the higher the likelihood that it's going to fall apart by virtue of, 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 of detection or leaks. And that, I think, is what's going to really happen here. The, the incentives are going to be there for people to, you know, to talk, like people who, you know, the guy from Facebook who contacted James O'Keefe and people who are, you know, those incentives are there and they haven't succeeded. You know, look, you and I are still on Twitter, God help us. We're, and, and podcasts, they just can't, and they're not really even trying to monitor the podcast. I, I, I think we're not at that stage of totalitarianism that a lot of people feel that we are. As long as you, it, it, what you have to do though is divert your look away from this, basically what is the state media towards reality. And, and at the bottom line, you know, to kind of go back, I'm not going to say circle back, but, you know, to go back to, to just, you know, the topic of the book, at this point, because of what independent media has done, because of the work they've put together, the journalism, and that the videos that they've been able to find night after night and being able to spread it out. If you are someone who goes out there and says Antifa is just an idea, you sound like a lunatic right now. <laughs> You're right. You're 100% right. And, and you I just sound like a lunatic. With God's help, that's going to continue, and we're going to get through this. Jack, I cannot tell you how grateful I am for you taking time to, to, to talk with me and, uh, and, and my many, many thousands, if you gather them all, all the time, any given moment of listeners. It's, you know, AntifaBook.com. AntifaBook.com. Yes, AntifaBook.com. That's that's going to be the place to go to find out where, where where it's in stock, where you can get it. And of course, Jack, if you mention Coleman of Nation podcast, Jack will personally autograph not only the front cover, but uh, page 74 of the book, you know, just for being a Coleman Nation. <laughs> Folks, let's get it done. Oh, no, that was my pillow. I'm sorry. I, I was thinking of my pillow. It's completely different. Well, when you've got your head in the cloud, you might as well be dreaming on top of a my pillow with promo code POSO. <laughs> All right, Jack. Thanks for everything. We'll talk soon. Thanks so much, Ryan. Thanks so much, Coleman Nation. See ya. Hey, thank you for listening to the Coleman Nation podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and leave a review. For more information, please visit the show's website at coleman-nation.com. That's coleman-nation.com. Or you can visit my blog at likelihoodofconfusion.com. Join us next time on the Coleman Nation podcast and have a great day.